0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Resurrection Life. Resurrection Life, Romans chapter 6, our text, verses 5 through 11. Uh, 1 through 14 read in your hearing for context. It's Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. I've heard it said that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who has turned from your sin to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then the story of your life, the story of your life could be written in two volumes. One volume detailing the life and times of the old man The second volume detailing the life and times of the new. The two volumes in your life story do not represent two aspects of your nature, the old and new together, in you as it were at the same time. The two volumes do not represent two competing devotions for your heart as if there were two competing forces at work at the same time. The two volumes represent two entirely different periods in your life. Two different periods in your life. One before your conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The other after your conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two time periods separated by that singular moment in time in which you were born again by the Spirit of God. Characterized by that moment at time at which you were raised from being dead in trespasses and sins and given a new life. A time at which you were granted a gift of God's grace, the blessedness of repentance and faith. And upon being given that wondrous gift of repentance and faith, you set out to follow Christ justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone as signified at your baptism. Then your old man has died, died through union with the Lord Jesus Christ in his own death. The guilt the shame, the penalty for, for your sin, that was due your sin, borne away by him forever, laid upon Christ, who bore them all in your place and for your benefit. And so certain your death in union with him, it's as if you were laid in his own tomb. Your old man then crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your old man then buried with the Lord Jesus Christ. That grave a portal, as it were, into a new realm. That grave a portal, as it were, into a, a new kingdom. For it was at that very moment that your new man was raised to life with Jesus Christ. Volume one ends with the judicial death of the old man. I was a sinner. I deserved to die, and I did die. I received that which I deserved, and I received that in my substitute, the one with whom I have become one. Volume two opens with your resurrection. My old life of sin having ended, my new Life to God now begins in the ministry and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the very power that now works in me as a raised, blood bought Son of the Lord, a Son of God in His kingdom, in His household, is the same mighty power by which God Almighty raised Christ from the dead. It's the power of an endless life. Dr. Murray refers to that power. And when speaking of the newness of our resurrection life in Christ, he calls that power the guarantee of its certainty and the dynamic of its realization. It is an absolute certainty. The gospel radically changes a sinner's life. The gospel changes a sinner's life because God changes not only his status, but God changes his person. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is emphatic. Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The life of a believer, there's not just a a new heart. There aren't just new desires and new affections that militate against living in a continued, unchallenged pattern of sin. But there's the power of God at work in the believer that militates against it the power of his indwelling spirit. And just as we have been united to Christ in his death to sin, you and I have been raised together with Christ that we should walk in the newness of his resurrection life. Having been made partakers of his death, that death affirmed, confirmed in his burial, we are then made partakers of his resurrection life. It is incomprehensible to imagine, it's an absurd thought, Paul would say, that anyone could come to Jesus Christ, be forgiven of their sin, be delivered from their sin, die to their sin in union with him, in order that they may then go out and live in sin as a professing Christian. It's incomprehensible. No matter what you hear in the world, it is inconsistent, incongruous. It simply is impossible for that to be the case. Why? Because God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. God indwells us with his spirit and he causes us in grace to walk according to his statutes and judgments and to keep them. That resurrection life does not mean that the Christian has died to the presence of sin forever. Not yet. Not yet. We've died to the penalty to our sin. We have died to the power that sin once exercised over us but we have yet to die fully to the presence of sin. That's going to take place in our glorification. Amen. There's a principle that yet remains in the members of our fallen flesh. Paul's going to get into that in Romans chapter 7. A principle in my members, Paul calls it. And that principle wages war against the principle of my heart. That principle in my flesh, in my carnal flesh, wages war against the principle in my mind that agrees with God, that agrees that his law is holy, just, and good. It wages war. It's the villainous principle of remaining corruption. Uh, The principle, the corrupt principle of indwelling sin. And that sin, that power, still seeking to exert an ungodly influence over the Christian. A principle, then, which sets the Christian locked in a warfare, a warfare that takes place the rest of his life until we are finally set free from this body of death. So no, that resurrection life does not mean that we are sinlessly perfect or that we are free on this side of eternity from the presence of sin forever. It's not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life that matters. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I don't know how you preach a perfection theology with a text like that in the Bible. (laughs) However, that resurrection life, brothers and sisters, that resurrection life is characterized by its newness. It is a new life. We have died with Christ, died with Christ to our sin, to the power and dominion of our sin. Sin no longer has mastery over us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer wields that kind of power over us, we have been set free. And that resurrection life, now having been raised in him, that resurrection life is characterized by its newness. Paul marks that newness with four imperatives or commands that will characterize the Christian who has been raised in Jesus Christ. How are we to live or walk in newness of resurrection life? Look at verse 11. First, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. We're going to look at this text uh, next week. Reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it. Don't do it. Verse 13, do not present the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. You are dead to sin. but Rather, stated positively, verse 13, present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, raised in Jesus Christ, and the parts of your body as instruments of of righteousness. And all of that, we're to do in faith. Paul's point, we're to take on faith. These things are true, they are actual, they are real. This is what the Bible says is really the condition of the Christian who has died in union with Christ and has been raised in union with Christ. These things are true, take it up as a matter of faith and do it in faith in dependence upon the power and strength of the spirit of God within us. Knowing we have a promise from God that sin will not have dominion over us. We're not under law. We are under the operations of God's grace. We'll unpack that further as we work through the text. The implications of living and the power of Christ's resurrection life. As we've determined so far in our consideration of this text, Romans chapter six, we've gone through verses one through four. Now we're entering verses five through 11. Paul has grounded his argument for new life or grounded his argument for resurrection life, a resurrection life in which it is impossible for the Christian to continue in an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of sin in his life, Paul has grounded that argument in a believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That union with Christ is a union with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And it's, it's a union that is beautifully illustrated, graphically illustrated in the waters of baptism. An illustration that displays that union's purpose in a believer's resurrection to new life. That purpose to walk in newness of life, right? It's an argument that Paul then summarizes in verse 5. Look there with me. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly... Without doubt, surely we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now notice in Paul's summary explanation here, verse five, he begins with a conditional statement. And it's a not it's not a conditional statement that expresses uncertainty, it's a conditional statement that expresses certainty. Right? He begins with an if-then condition. Do you see that verse five? A conditional statement can be either determinate or indeterminate. If we used an indeterminate conditional statement, we might say, uh, if it rains this afternoon, then we're going to have fellowship lunch inside, It expresses an unknown, an uncertainty. It's indeterminate. However, a determinate conditional statement assumes or insists that a premise is true. And if that premise is true, and in this case, that we have been united together with Christ in the likeness of his death, if that premise is true, and it most certainly is true, Paul has proven his point, for those who have been united to Christ in faith, then we shall most certainly be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. You could say since, right? Since we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, we most certainly will be, shall be, absolutely are now then united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. The key to understanding the, the nature of that condition there is Paul's use of that little word certainly, certainly, right? Right? In other words, this is important for us to consider, important to remember, these two truths, these two conditions, or these two circumstances are joined together. They're married. If you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. Those two things are married together. They are joined. What God has joined together, let not man separate, right? Right? They're married together. Upon Paul's inarguable assertion that believers are in fact united with Christ in his death, it follows not as a matter of possibility, not even a matter as a matter of probability. It follows as a matter of fact that believers are therefore united with Christ, joined to Christ in his resurrection. That goes against the grain for many today who want to argue exactly the opposite. Hear it on a regular basis. I was saved, I walked an aisle when I was twelve. I lived however I wanted to live for the next 20 years of my life, and then I made Jesus Lord, right? What what has happened? We've divorced justification from the power of God's Spirit at work in the life to transform a sinner into a resurrected trophy of God's grace, right? We've divorced those two things. They died to Christ, so to speak, in their justification. They were never raised to walk in newness of life. People want to divorce those things all the time. It's obvious to us, it'd be obvious reading the text, that Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, were physical realities. Christ actually went to the cross, and Christ died a physical death at the cross in the place of ruined sinners. And Christ was bodily, physically raised from the dead. Our death and our resurrection in union with Jesus Christ are spiritual realities. They're not physical realities, are they? They're spiritual realities. So Paul rightly refers to our union to be in the likeness of his death, verse 5, and Paul rightly refers to our union to be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that doesn't mean, for Paul to say there that it's in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection, doesn't make it any less real. Doesn't make it any less effectual. These are actual Real, intensely practical, blood-bought realities that are conferred upon one who has placed his faith or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? These are actually given to a believer and they are effectual. They have effect in the life of the Christian. It does, what Paul means by that word likeness there, it does mean to say that the two are qualitatively different. Different. You didn't die. In the same way that Jesus Christ died, you didn't die for the same reasons that Jesus Christ died. You weren't raised in the same way that He is raised. You will be one day. (laughs) You will be one day. But it doesn't make it, the fact that it's spiritual doesn't make it any less real. It is tangible. It bears fruit in our Christian experience, it bears fruit in a Christian's life. And if that fruit isn't there, I'd be concerned about where you are, be concerned about the, the condition of your soul. His physical death at the cross and his physical or bodily resurrection from the grave have secured for us, those of us who have been united with him through faith, secured for us certain connected or consequent spiritual realities. If that came through the shed blood and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think those blessings are going to be certain to us or uncertain to us? If it came through the death of the Son of God, those blessings are absolutely certain, right? Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5. If he died, then much more shall we live in him. Do you see? Absolutely certain to us. His physical death on the cross, to and for our sin, secured for us a spiritual death, in our union with him. And it's a spiritual death that is an actual death to sin. If you've been raised in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. You have died to sin. I want you to think for a moment about the implications of that. We're going to get into implications in the text. If you've put your faith in Christ, you're saying I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Well, listen. A Christian is someone who is united with Christ in his death, who has, in Christ's death, themselves spiritually died to sin. What's that going to look like in your life? Is that going to have an effect in your life? You bet it will. It absolutely will. Not only have you died to sin in Jesus Christ, but if you are one, united to Christ by faith, having died with him, you also have been raised with him, In the power of a resurrection life, you yourself have been given new life in Jesus Christ. Do you think that's going to have an impact on your Christian walk? Absolutely it is. Christians should look like changed people. Christians should look like radically transformed people. You may have grown up like living a moral life, grown up in a moral household. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe you were a moral person, right? On the outside, you look like you got a clean cup. But we know what the inside is like, don't we? The inside has been radically transformed. New desires, new affections, a new mind, a new intellect, new imaginations, right? New hopes, new dreams. New, 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 do you see? Resurrection life, newness of life. His physical resurrection from the grave secured for us spiritual resurrection from a spiritual death. To new life in Jesus Christ. That spiritual resurrection, that resurrection life alluded to throughout scripture. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, we are not dead in sins. We're just sick. We can do good if we want to. We're inherently good. We're just, we're basically good people. We just occasion no, nope. Paul says there is no one good. No, not one. You were dead in sin dead in sin. What can a dead man do? Stink. That's all he can do. He can't do any righteousness. He can't do anything righteous. He needs to be raised to new life. Do you think that makes a radical change in a person's life, in his relationship to God, in his relationship to sin? Absolutely. It makes a radical difference. Verse six in Ephesians chapter two, he raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Already seated as it were spiritually with Christ in heavenly places. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, now seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, he goes on. Therefore, what are the implications, right? What are the implications? We have that truth given to us. But that truth isn't truth for truth's sake. That truth is meant to transform the way that we think, to inform what we believe and change the way that we live, right? We are being conformed into the image of his son. How are we being conformed? We're being conformed by being informed. We understand the truth of God. We are to believe that truth in faith and endeavor after new obedience according to it, right? We're to live resurrection lives, he says in verse five, therefore, in light of these truths, put to death your members, which are on the earth. I thought that I had already died. Yes, you are dead. Put to death your members, right? Be who you are. (laughs) Might be the way that Paul would say it. Live as you are. (laughs) Uh, In truth, be what you are in truth to be. The words of Jesus Christ himself, John chapter 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, the Lord says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, present reality, and shall not come into judgment, future, but has passed, past tense, right, from death into life. Has passed from death into life. You've been given resurrection life. Why is it that we... Take pains with the language this way. Now, think with me about the text. We're working slowly through Romans. We've come now to Romans chapter six, verse five. Why take such pains with likeness, with uh, if conditions? With why do we take such pains with the language? Let me give you two reasons. One, because the Word of God is both verbally and plenarily inspired. Every word given by the inspiration of God and profitable. That's every tense of every word, every case ending, right? Every word inspired by the living God. If we hold that this is the word of God, then it necessitates that kind of study, that kind of precision, that kind of accuracy, that kind of detail. It necessitates it, right? Because it is the word of the living God. And God is pretty wise, right? (laughs) His word is going to be that wisdom. Secondly, though, secondly, the second reason that we take pains with a language like this is because many men continuously twist or reject the truth of what Paul is saying here to their own destruction. To their own destruction. Do you think it matters how you think about sin in your Christian life? Do you think it matters? Absolutely it does. Do you think it matters what you believe about your relationship to sin? Does it matter what relationship to sin you think you have. It absolutely matters. What you believe will show up in how you live and how you act. What you believe will show up in how you pray in how you worship and how you sing and how you fellowship and how you live. It'll show up in your joy or the lack of it. It'll show up in your hope. It'll show up in your faith, What you believe is incredibly important because what you believe will... impact how you conduct yourselves, how you live your Christian life. Constantly divorcing our salvation from union with Christ, divorcing our union with Christ from his death to sin, divorcing our union with him in his death, from our union with him in his resurrection, in effect, divorces justification by faith from newness of life. And you'll be... uh, carnal Christian, on your way to hell. You'll be somebody, yeah, I made Jesus my savior when I was 12. I'll make him my Lord at some point, right? Or simply living in sin, presuming upon the grace of God to cover it, turning the grace of God into licentiousness, using grace as an excuse to continue in sin, using grace as an excuse to live however you want to live, Listen, it doesn't mean that Christians are going to live a perfect life, but Christians are doggedly determined to pursue holiness, aren't they? To pursue righteousness. Why? Because we think that it checks some spiritual box that we have to check in order to make it at the end. No. In answer to Paul's original question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The believer says, absolutely not. How is it possible? Paul lines that answer up with thick theological truth to support it. It's impossible for these theological reasons. We have an experiential sense of that truth, don't we? In the heart, we don't want to live any longer in it. Not one more second. How many of you here, genuine professing Christians, seriously, would submit yourself to surgery, without anesthetic, if you thought that that black tar ball of sin left in your flesh could be removed. (laughs) Why? I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be a faithful servant, a faithful slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. In love for him and in gratitude to him for all that he's done for me, I want to be free from sin. Do you see? And Paul is making the, the point that we are We are, we have been freed from sin's dominion. We are no longer slaves of sin. It's up to us then to, in the power of the spirit, (laughs) to live in light of that reality and to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness and harmony with that reality. In answer to Paul's original question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? A vast majority of professing Christians would boldly answer, if not by their words, they would certainly answer with their actions, with their lives. Of course we shall. Of course we shall. Why shall we who have been forgiven of sin concern ourselves any longer with it? Right? How many of you have witnessed the people who give that kind of answer? It happens all the time. The text ensures against any thought that would lead to license, right? Paul erases any possibility that you could use grace or justification by faith to lead you into an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of sin in your professing Christian life. You'll find no excuse for sin on the pages of Scripture. We've got to settle it in our heart and mind, right? The faster that you settle that truth in your heart and mind is the sooner you can claim by faith the promises of God associated with, with his truth and live in the power of his spirit, a resurrected life, right? If you're not living by faith in Jesus Christ in these promises, then what's happening in your spiritual warfare? You're not fighting against sin. You're losing against sin, Why? Right? Because you're not fighting in faith. You're not fighting based on truth, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, then certainly, certainly we are in the likeness, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. As certainly as we have been spiritually united to Christ in his physical death to sin at the cross, having died ourselves in union with him, then just as certainly as one condition follows determinately upon another... We also shall be spiritually united to Jesus Christ, morally, practically as a pattern of life in his resurrection from the dead, which for us is a new life. It's a new life, free from the power or the dominion of sin, free from our slavery to sin, free to pursue undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reality is is based on what we now know through Paul's argument, Romans chapter 6. It's based upon what we know to be true, right? What we know to be true is the foundation that has been laid. The foundation upon which our assertion now has been made. And Paul backs that up, verse 6. Knowing this, right, the foundation... Of that resurrection life for the Christian is based upon knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And these verses are so intensely practical, aren't they? Especially in the world in which we live, which everywhere you go, people are scrambling to twist scripture to justify a continued life of sin. Witnesses somebody, and um, the thought of warfare against sin or battling sin or fighting sin is entirely foreign. I have no idea what you're talking about. Foreign, foreign to a Christian. This sets us at warfare with indwelling sin. That's what Paul is going to explain in Romans chapter 7. It sets us at battle with our flesh. He who has died has been freed from sin. Now live, live, live in light of that truth. Here's a good illustration uh, to help us uh, see Paul's point. If this is a good illustration, you know it's not original, right? So... (laughs) Not, original, rather, not an original illustration. Paul depicts the genuine Christian, Romans chapter 6, using the analogy of a slave who has been killed. Right? A slave who has been killed. Every Christian is a slave who is crucified. Every Christian. As surely as he is crucified, that crucified slave is raised from the dead to live a new life. Every Christian. We were slaves of sin. We have died with Christ, and having been buried with Christ, we have now been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So imagine with me, if you will, a poor slave. A poor slave who's been imprisoned in a castle under the rule of a tyrannical master. Imprisoned in bondage under the reign of, of a despot, a tyrannical master. Under the power of this ma- master, the slave is entirely hopeless, entirely helpless, powerless to resist, unable to free himself, destined for a pitiless and merciless death at the hands of this master. He groans. Under the severity of his bondage. And it is severe. He acknowledges the utter futility of his circumstances. There is no power in himself. There is no hope to free himself. The slave is given over to misery and to despair. And yet the only thing that he can think of is a means to escape. How can I get myself free? Right? How can I be set free? I'll do anything. I'll try anything. And so he considers... And he thinks and he plots his escape. He knows it to be a futile effort. He plots his escape using a ladder of ten rungs. (laughs) Ten commandments, right? He leans the ladder against a wall, the wall of his prison, and he works and he works and he works to climb the ladder, hoping to scale the wall and escape. But each time he tries, his cruel master finds him, finds him resting all of his hope upon the ladder, and with every rung that he climbs, he is mercilessly, beaten down, his hopes dashed, cast farther into the depths of despair. How will he ever be free? And this repeats itself and repeats itself. Well, there's a king in the land who is well aware of the plight of this hopeless slave, well aware of the destitute condition in which the slave now lives, and at great, immeasurable cost to himself, in fact, at the cost of his own life, this good king has secured the means of the slave's escape. Escape for the slave means certain death. Certain death. We see the connections, don't we? So this good king crucifies the helpless and hopeless slave. This good king kills him. And when his former master now finds his former slave dead, much to his annoyance, he can no longer make any demands upon him. He can't demand anything from him. He's dead. All of his claims over this slave are now useless. They're void. He has no claim over him. He's died. There is therefore now no condemnation. Do you see? No power over the slave. The slave is dead. His tyrannical master and has now lost his subject. All of his power, all of the dominion that this tyrannical master once had over his slave is now broken. It's empty. It's shallow. It's void, nullified. you see? Nullified through the death of the slave. He can have no power or dominion over a dead man. His slavery has come to an end. Having defeated this tyrannical master... Having killed, having crucified the slave, the good king rescues this pitiful slave by raising him from the dead as a new man. <laughs> right. Takes him into his own household to live a new life as an adopted son. He's given a seat at the king's table. He's now an heir of the king himself. When the slave now comes to acknowledge, comes to realize the depths of what has been done for him, which is sometimes a bit of a process, isn't it? When he grows in recognition, when he grows in understanding of the riches that have been given to him, the love that has been poured out upon him by the good king, his heart is naturally, isn't it, overwhelmed with gratitude. And the more and more that he grows in his understanding the more and more that his gratitude grows and his joy grows. And he pledges his heart, mind, soul, and strength, love. He pledges his devotion to the good king, and he commits himself to serve the king forever. The old man was crucified. Is he carrying around his corpse now? No. His old man is dead. Dead. The new man, created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians chapter 4, <laughs> dead to his former master, alive now again, alive to his new master. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ, you see? Paul doesn't speak of man with a, a dichotomous nature. We have a new nature, a renewed nature. Not old and new together, old competing with the new. And sometimes, depending on how good you do, sometimes the new does a little better than the old. No. Man has a new nature. He has a new nature. His old man has been crucified. Two volumes. Two volumes to your life, do you see? The new man now characterized, marked by holiness, by righteousness. It is true of the new man that that old tyrannical master has no claim on him, has no power over him, has no dominion over him. He has died to that master, do you see? And the Christian life then, learning these truths, meditating on these truths, understanding and embracing these truths, living in faith, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that these things are in fact true. The new man has to live and grow in his understanding of these things that he might live and mature in his resurrection life to the glory of God, to the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Paul describes the new man in Colossians 3.10 as renewed in knowledge, According to the image of him who created him. Renewed in knowledge. Renewed in knowledge. The image of him who created him is in large part a moral image. A moral image. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Our old man crucified. Why? To what end? That we might live in newness of life. It's largely a moral image. Paul describes here, Romans chapter 6, the spiritual death of believers in union with Christ As having two purposes here. Two purposes. First, that the body of sin might be done away with. Do you see that? That the body of sin might be done away with. Nailed to the cross, we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Second, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And what did I do? What did you do? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Set free, right? Set free. Romans chapter 6, verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Freed from sin. The word there is interesting. It's Decaio dikayao. And it's a word that means righteousness or, or used in our text for justified. So there, there's another word that can be used and will be used soon of free, for free. Here, the word is a word that means justified. He who has died has been justified from sin. Declared righteous from sin. Paul emphasizes all that he said to this point with this verse, verse 7, that he who has died to sin has been released, freed from, declared righteous from, set in a different place from, given a new status away from sin. <laughs> it, just, it couldn't be said more emphatically. Brothers and sisters, how, how, many, how many ways must it be said before it is graven upon our hearts and minds, right? Before it is graven on our lives as we live for Christ. There must be in the life of one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, there must be a definitive breach with sin. If you are in Jesus Christ through faith, there has been a definitive breach with sin. It's evidential in the Christian's life if there has been no definitive breach with sin, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about direction. We're talking about pattern. We're talking about warfare. We're talking about a hatred for sin. We're talking about a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. If there has been no definitive breach with sin, then your security in Christ is empty. It's a carnal security. It's a shallow assurance. And you will perish. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Not everyone, listen to the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. There are many who profess Jesus Christ as Lord who will not enter heaven. Who will enter heaven? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, the Lord says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Have we not done all of these religious things, even in the name of Jesus Christ, professing to be a Christian? Have we not done all of these things? The Lord says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many, many, many go in by that gate. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few that find it. Paul now states that same truth, right? That same truth, the truth that he's been building toward, he states that same truth now positively or in its positive implications beginning in verse 8. Same truth, verse 8. Now then, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing this, you see the connections, the similarities between the two. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. In verse 8, Paul now employs the very same determinate condition that he used back in verse 5. you see it? The asserted premise, if it's true that we've died to Christ, is followed by its certain consequence. We believe, as a matter of fact, then, that we shall also live with Christ. If the believer has died to the power or dominion of sin and his union with Jesus Christ, then we believe that we are united with him and united with him, we are one with him in his resurrection and we will live with him forever. If you died with him, you're going to live with him forever, right? The two things are married, joined together. Having died once for all, Christ Dies no more. Having died in Christ to sin, having been raised to new life in him, we ourselves will live forever. Such that, verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all of us who have been united to Christ by faith. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So it's been established, hasn't it, as a, a point of fact, a point of fact, that the Lord's death, at the cross, is not only a substitutionary death for our sins or in our place, but that the Lord's substitutionary death at the cross was his death to sin's power and dominion and that death for us, for our benefit. Furthermore, the Lord's life that he now lives, he lives in resurrection power to the glory of God the Father, such that those who have died to sin's power in their union with him, with Christ in his death, not only share in his victory over sin, but as a matter of fact, those in union with Jesus Christ in his death also share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in his victory over the grave. The two things are married together, joined together. And believers live in that same resurrection power. The power of, At work when God raised him from the dead is the power that now works in you and I living a resurrection life. That's described as having been done once for all. Once for all. Now this, to this point, to this point all these things are indicatives. They're all statements of fact. And you notice that? Indicative statements, statements of fact, assertions of theological truth, Become the the theological foundation of how then we are to respond or how we're to live, how we're to think, how we're to believe. They become the glorious why to motivate our obedience, to instruct us as we live the Christian life. That's why the law of God becomes, uh, in its third use, becomes a guide to the Christian life, how we're to live. We need to know these things. Knowing these things should change how we believe, should change how we live. That reality then is expressed in the command of verse 11. Verse 11. Likewise, you also. And here we have really the first imperatives that we've come across. Imperatives in the word of God in in Romans chapter 6. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it's interesting, and I want to make a point from this for us. Reckon means to consider yourself. Think about yourself. And when you think about yourself, say to yourself, self, you are dead to sin. You are dead to sin, right? I believe this now as a matter of fact and as a matter of faith. If you want to hold on to name it and claim it theology, this is your opportunity to do it, right? Here's your opportunity. Name it and claim it. I am dead To sin, that's a promise of God from this chapter, from this argument, okay? I have been raised with Jesus Christ to new life in him. Name it and claim it. The facts have been established. This is the point that we've been making. It's not only a matter of fact, it is a matter of faith. This is something that God's word said. God does not, cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. This is true of you if you've put your faith and trust in Christ. It's as much a promise as it is a command, right? If these things are true of you, claim it and live your life in faith, right? Live your life in faith for the one who died for you and rose again. You must believe it. Consider yourself to be dead indeed to sin and consider yourself alive to God in Christ. Having considered yourself dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ, then act accordingly in faith, Right? Live accordingly in faith. If this is an established fact, if it is an established truth, and we can, ins- can assert it as such, then why the command? If it's true, then why the command? Because, although it's true, this is a reality that is not always sensed. <laughs> right? Right? Although it's true, this is a reality that's not always experienced in the Christian life as a matter of fact, is it? We must remind ourselves of this truth. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you've struggled with this very thing. Right? I used to look at that statement that sin Will no longer have dominion over you. Used to look at that as a judgment upon me, rather than as a promise of God to grace to to embrace through faith. Right? Remember, early in my Christian life, um, weeping, weeping, weeping over that verse. Why would I weep over that verse? Because I'm struggling with sin, battle in battle over sin, waging war against my sin. I'm losing. Some, I'm winning some, right? Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. That's a promise of God. That's not a a judgment against you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Christ for salvation? There's no condemnation over your head. There's no judgment over your head. Stop putting yourself back under the law, under its condemning power. You've died died to sin. You're a dead man over there. You've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. So don't put yourself back under the condemnation of the law in that way. That's a promise of God. And it's a promise of God to embrace through faith. So if I'm looking at that verse, verse 14, and that statement, that promise of God, if I'm looking at that as a judgment or as condemnation that hangs over me, am I reading that through the eyes of faith? No. Am I fighting then in the power of faith? No. And what does my battle then look like? It looks like defeat. (laughs) Because I'm not going to win the battle against sin in my own strength. I, if I have any hope at all of having victory over sin, it's going to be through faith in Jesus Christ for all that he has done, for all that he has promised me that is now true of me. That is embraced by faith and pursued in faith and won in faith all because he is the one at work in us to willing to do according to his good pleasure. It's not often experienced in the Christian life or it's often forgotten (sighs) these truths and so the command is given reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord having been set free rise (laughs) And follow him. These are facts, brothers and sisters, that the believer can rely on. These are facts that we can trust in. Let me ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Then be who you are. (laughs) Live the life that you've been raised to live. Pursue righteousness and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hunger and thirst after it. Pursue it in his word. Pursue conformity with his son. Pursue that in gratitude. Pursue that in love. Don't put yourself under the condemnation of the law. When you start to sound to yourself like you're a a slave again in bondage, you're thinking wrong. When you start thinking to yourself that I'm... In the prison, and you're you find yourself climbing the rungs of a ten-rung ladder (laughs) to escape over the wall, you're thinking wrong. The one who goes over the wall is a thief and a robber. You've got to enter in by the gate. And Jesus Christ is the door of the sheepfold, right? You start to imagine that you are again a slave to sin. Remember, reckon yourselves to be dead. Indeed, to sin, I am, you are dead to sin. Trust in Christ for these facts and embracing Jesus Christ in faith for these realities to be true of you, pursue him in faith, pursue righteousness in faith, pursue holiness in faith, pursue holiness and dependence upon the Holy Spirit for his strength, not your own, and flee from sin. I don't even know if I have the Holy Spirit. It is a matter of faith to believe. I don't know if I, I, don't, I, sometimes I feel like I'm, it is a matter of faith to believe. It is a matter, these truths are a matter of faith. Embrace them in faith and pursue holiness. Pursue that battle with sin and rejoice to fight until he calls you home when the fight will be no more. You gotta remind yourselves, right? Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. What do we know? What is it that I know? I know that Christ has died for sinners. And I qualify. (laughs) Christ has died for sinners. He died for sin, meaning he died in my place, and he died on my behalf. I embrace that through faith, I believe. I once asked somebody, we're sitting in the car, I said, do you think you're a Christian? No, not sure. What do you think? And he says, "Um, yeah, I, I, um, I don't, I don't think I'm a Christian. So I asked him, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? It's a simple question, but he simply could not say that Jesus Christ died for him. It's a matter of faith to believe that Jesus Christ died. And not only that he died, but that he died for me. He died for me. He died for my sin. He took my sin upon himself on the tree when he died. He bore the penalty that I deserved. He died in my place as my substitute, bearing the guilt, the shame, the wrath of God, bearing that for me. It's a matter of faith. Christ died for sin. Having died for sin, he died to sin for me. He died victorious over sin in the grave that I, in union with him, might be victorious over sin and the grave. And if that's the case, then through faith, I believe, because the word of God says it, that I died in him. I believe that I'm dead to sin in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Can you see how affirmations of truth, they have to clean up our stinking thinking, so that through faith we can live for him. I believe that I've died in him then. I am dead indeed to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. The old man has been crucified. Crucified. And praise God if you can see some evidence in your heart and life that you've been raised a new man. If that's true, that I am dead indeed to sin, then knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, I believe it through faith. There are so many eyewitnesses in the Bible that saw him walking around. The apostles who fled in fear after they saw the risen Jesus Christ raised from the dead, they marched right back into Jerusalem and preached the very same gospel in the city that killed him. And they preached the gospel to their own deaths. There's enough evidence in the Bible that Jesus Christ was, in fact, raised from the dead. It's the whole point of Paul's gospel presentation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He was seen by over 500 people and not the least of which is Paul himself, one born out of due time. If Christ has been raised, then I know as a matter of faith and as a matter of fact written on the pages of Scripture in God's Word that I have been raised together with him. I have been raised. And what is the purpose? The end of my resurrection. New life. New life. I've been made a new creation. I've been given a new heart. I have a spirit, his spirit indwelling me. right? A new life, free from the dominion of sin. What do I have to do? I need to cling to him in faith for those truths. Cling to him in faith. I will trust the Lord for what I know to be true. If I'm trusting the Lord for what I know to be true, then what am I to do? What am I to do with that reality? Verse 13, present yourselves to God then as being alive from the dead. Here I am, right? by virtue of your grace, by virtue of the, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done for me, I am alive from the dead. And my members as instruments of righteousness to God, I will serve him. And you claim that promise, which is a promise, by the way, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. What's the evidence of that? It's, dominion has been broken. And we see its influence waning year by year, day by day. As we live by faith, the Lord separates us more and more from the presence of sin in our lives, the power of his spirit at work in us, his spirit who is a guarantee of our future inheritance and our future glorification. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, you are under grace. We have to fight with that perspective, right? Otherwise your fight's gonna be in vain. You have to fight with that perspective, fight in faith. Otherwise, you're fighting a faithless fight. What victory are you going to have, right? That's true of the believer. Some have never died. Some make a profession of faith. They make a decision, right? Made a decision. I did it. I walked an aisle, I said the prayer, or whatever it is that you do that you think you've done. I know Christ has saved me, but they've never died. I know the Lord has saved me. I know I'm a Christian, but they're not alive. They're not alive with new affections and new desires for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not alive, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're not alive with a hatred for sin. They're not living as those who have been raised from the dead. They're going through religious motions they continue in religious motions. Some profess to know Christ. They've not been brought into vital union with Christ. And they are dead. To attempt to claim these truths to yourself is to mock the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to be with those who mocked him. It's to attempt a form of godliness while denying its power. It's to be hypocritical to be self-righteous. Die to sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Die to self in the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourself. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust Christ alone to save you. And we who have been raised have the promise of a future consummation of that inaugurated reality, don't we? I think the Bible refers to our um, regeneration as the first resurrection. There will be a second resurrection, amen, when we will be raised forever with him to live with him in eternity, uh, sinless, unable to sin by his grace, amen? Trophies of his grace to the praise of his everlasting glorious grace. And with that, we rejoice in hope. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for these glorious truths. We thank you, Lord, that these are truths um, that you have given us in your word that we can lay hold of, um, that we can grasp onto uh, with the embrace of faith and we can trust in and we can take to the bank, so to speak, uh, that we might live uh, Christian life, our Christian lives for you in newness of life, in resurrection life, in resurrection power uh, to the praise of your glory and grace. Help us, Lord, to do that. Grow us and mature us in these truths. Grow us and mature us in the way that that we think. Grow us and mature us in what we believe and conform us, Lord, to the image of your Son. Help us to live in the power of the Spirit of God. Help us to live by faith in these truths as you have applied them to us. And Lord, further and further, in your grace to us, further and further separate us from sin, that we might live all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength for you, the one who has died for us and has been raised again. We love you. We thank you, Lord. Teach us, strengthen us, help us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.